Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. A bad day at the office. Netflix shares drop free markets as it loses friends and U.S. subscribers. Getting old, a face app backlash as users realize it's owned by Russians. And coming up, our exclusive interview with St. Louis Fed President Jim Bullard. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move once again. Very excited, as I mentioned, about our exclusive interview with Jim Bullard, the St. Louis Fed president. That's coming up. But first, a quick look at what we're seeing for the markets right now. We are set to lose a bit of ground here, pre-market it seems, but set for a mostly flat open. Not all bad, though. Manufacturing Bellwether Honeywell and Insurer United Health raising their earnings guidance today. So watch those ones. And Morgan Stanley beating estimates on the top and bottom lines. Thank you to a strong wealth management performance offsetting what we've seen a lot of already equity trading revenue weakness but I do think it's poor numbers from Germany's SAP that's helping set the tone here trade uncertainty they say hitting their Asia business and on that point Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin saying that China's Huawei is not the sticking point in the current trade talks despite the front page of the Wall Street Journal today it seems deal making things are never just that simple now speaking of not simple Netflix stock looking pretty challenged pre-market and that's where we're going to begin the drivers as I mentioned Netflix shares plummeting pre-market down some ten and a half percent right now adding far fewer subscribers than promised 2.7 million versus 5 million expected in Frank Frank Pelota joins us now on these numbers Frank First thing, someone in the forecasting department needs firing based on uh, based on those numbers. But they said, look, this is not about competition. It was about content. What do we make of these numbers? Well, they're not good. I mean, when I, this is probably their one of their worst forecast misses since 2016. And to really think about this, the question that everyone in Hollywood is really asking is, was this just a really bad quarter and a bad forecast miss? Or is this the sign of bad times to come in how, uh, to, uh, for Netflix? You got to remember, in the coming year, they're going to see huge competition coming from Disney Plus, HBO Max, which is Warner Media, the owner of CNN's streaming service, Apple, and others. Not to mention the Hulu's of the world that are already out there. So this is kind of showing that they're they're kind of in a bad place, but we just don't know yet if this is the sign of things to come. Yeah, I mean the other point is, I mean they raised prices in the quarter too, so there's a sense here that we are now getting to the point where it looks expensive. Potentially, when you've got Disney Plus coming at half the price in in November of this year, I wonder whether it's a question about the model itself and whether this also raises questions for some of the others coming to market here too, Frank. Not just about Netflix themselves. It definitely could be. I mean, Netflix really put the blame on its content, saying that the the Q2 content they had came out just did not bring in the type of subscribers that they anticipated. They said that the second half of their year is full of just big hits like The Crown, Orange is the New Black, and even like the third quarter started off with Stranger Things uh, 3, which is a huge, massive hit for them. So, But it could have a lot to do with the price, too, because they said the regions where the price increases happened is where they really saw the forecast miss. So it's going to be interesting to see the next year for Netflix and for all of streaming to see how consumers really take hold of this brand new world and market of over-the-top 
price uh, of con- uh, products, I should say. Yeah, have we hit peak pricing, giving all the competition? Frank Pelota, thank you so much for joining us on that. All right, let's move on and talk SAP, because that was also under a lot of pressure in the European session. They reported a 21% decline in operating profits due to restructuring, but it was the Asia business, the software sales, that actually drew my attention. Claire Sebastian joins us now on this. Claire, talk me through it, because the CEO was saying, look, they're in wait-and-see mode over there, of course, due to the trade tensions. Yeah, Julia, the uh, earnings call going on right now, actually, that's exactly the message from the CEO, Bill McDermott. He basically said in his exact words, don't worry about it. He called this minor headwinds. And he pointed out that the quarter ended on June 30th, which was the day after the, the Trump-Xi meeting uh, at the G20, which, of course, when they agreed to, to keep talking and hold off new tariffs. And he said after that, uh, that many of the deals that had been postponed started to come back. He also pointed out that as companies start to make operational changes because of this trade war, things like moving moving supply chains. Sometimes the value of the deals they do with SAP actually goes up because they need even more help. So he's basically making the point uh, that this is just a blip. It's just a short term issue. Uh, but I think, you know, it really will. Well, it really shows just how far and wide this trade war uh, is trickling through the economy. This isn't a Chinese or American company. And this isn't even direct impact. You know, this isn't something like, you know, costs going up because of tariffs. This shows the effect of uncertainty and how much that is trickling down uh, to some of the, the, the world's major companies. Yeah, and this is also a company that's pushing into cloud, it's pushing more into software services. I mentioned the restructuring under the watchful eye, of course, of Elliott Management. So they've got a lot going on right now anyway. They do, certainly. They're, they're restructuring, they said today, is going to cost about a billion. That's that's causing some layoffs. They are moving uh, more into the cloud. They acquired the uh, online uh, software survey firm Qualtrics earlier this year uh, for about $8 billion. And, and look, that is certainly where we see a lot of companies positioning themselves nowadays. I think the issue that we see and why we see the stock uh, down today is that whatever SAP is doing, it doesn't change the fact that they're still vulnerable to these macro headwinds, Julia. Yeah. Claire Sebastian, thank you for that. All right. Let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that are making headlines around the world. A suspected arson attack on an animation studio in Kyoto, Japan, has killed at least 25 people and injured 36 others. Police say a man poured what appeared to be gasoline around the building and set it on fire. They say the 41-year-old suspect in the attack has been detained and that he was also carrying several knives in a backpack. The World Health Organization is now calling the Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo a public health emergency of international concern. There has been more than 2,500 Ebola cases and 1,600 deaths since the outbreak started last August. Iranian forces have seized a vessel carrying what Iran says was smuggled fuel. That's according to Iranian media, which reported the seizure took place in the Persian Gulf. The reports did not identify the tanker or its owner, but they did say 12 people were aboard. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But coming up, as I've mentioned, our exclusive interview with the voting Fed member Jim Bollard. Stay with us. That's coming up. first move. The U.S. Federal Reserve faces a momentous decision later this month. The Fed's Open Market Committee will vote on whether to cut interest rates for the first time in over a decade. One of the officials in the room in making that decision will be Jim Bullard. He's the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. He's one of the Fed's most influential members who urged the central bank to make a so-called insurance rate cut at the last meeting in June. And Jim Bullard joins me now. Great to have you with us. Great to be here, Julia. Has anything changed in your thinking or are you still thinking 
saying a quarter point rate cut in July is the right move? Well, I said we should have gone in June, yeah. so uh, now I think we should ratify the signals that we've sent that we'll go th follow through in July. What about half a percentage point cut? I don't think we really need to go that far at this point, uh, but we can make further moves as we go through the fall. We'll see how the data come in. We can be data dependent on that. You know, a lot of analysts out there and the market itself is pricing three rate cuts for this year. You've suggested perhaps one insurance rate cut in July, another one towards the back end of the year. The market's a bit over-enthusiastic. Yeah, I mean, you know, these things always depend on the data, but I think the critical thing here is to get inflation and inflation expectations better centered on our 2% inflation target. Uh, credibility is very important. We've missed our inflation target on the low side for many years. Uh, the economy has actually surprised on the upside during 2017 and 2018, and yet we still haven't been able to get inflation to 2%. So I think it's a good opportunity to try to hit that target and then come what may uh, later, and we can react to data later. So if it needs to be three cuts, so be it. If you're simply trying to get that inflation yeah. target more centered, three, four, whatever it takes. <laughs> well, let's not get carried away. We got Let's move at the July meeting, and then let's uh, uh, be data to from there and see how things go. But as you're looking at the data right now, it only justifies two to the end of the year in your mind. Yeah, I mean, you know, economic forecasting is not, not the most exact of sciences. So if I was just penciling it in, that's what I would guess. Uh, but, you know, we'll see as the data come in. I think, you know, another aspect about moving now is you have some insurance that against uh, further de deterioration in the economy. The economy is slowing down, which isn't a terrible thing. We had 3% growth year over year uh, as of the end of the first quarter. But most forecasters have about 2% growth in the second quarter, and depending on who you look at, maybe less than 2% in the second half. I think that wouldn't be the end of the world, but what if it slows down more than we think, possibly because of the trade war? Uh, this would provide a little bit of insurance against that. To those that say you're stimulating stock market prices, we're trading around record highs, that you're too early, the Federal Reserve here, with these insurance, as you, as you keep referring to them. What's your message? Well, I mean, uh, we want the U.S. economy to perform well. Uh, we want great employment outcomes. We're getting those. Uh, and we also want inflation to be right around our 2% target. We're missing a little bit on the low side there. So we could recenter there, but uh, overall, if that increases the value of the U.S. corporate sector, you know that's that's part of the game. Can recession be avoided if you act like this with insurance rate cuts? You know, one thing about recession is recession predictor models are are pretty high probability yes. right now. A lot of those are based on yield curve uh, arguments, and the yield curve is inverted, and parts of it are inverted right now. So one thing I'd like to do is kind of straighten out the yield curve, have a nice upward slope, uh, kind of a natural slope to the yield curve. And then we'll have a better reflection of the recession risks. I think it would bring the Fed more in line with markets about where, what, where markets think uh, medium-term growth is and medium-term inflation and where the Fed thinks it is. So those that are saying recession risk is high, or at least we could see recession right now in, in 2020 perhaps, it's kind of hard to believe recession risk is really high right now because look at the job market, look at everything. But but the yield curve is saying that. But I think if we uh, if we make a cut here and maybe a little more later in the year, 
then we'll get a nice uh, upward sloping yield curve. That's right. Jay Powers asked recently, and this is to your point on the struggling with that inflation target, whether the Phillips curve relationship is dead, i.e. the connection, the relationship between unemployment and, and inflation. And he said there's a faint heartbeat. <laughs> Yeah, if you look at the empirical evidence, it's gotten weaker and weaker. I think that's actually what he said, weaker and weaker uh, over time. And uh, there are good reasons to think that that, you know, why that has occurred. Uh, I think it's basically the inflation targeting era means that central banks have paid a lot more attention to hitting their inflation targets. If they get perfect, if they hit the inflation target perfectly, then inflation never moves, even though the real economy is bouncing around, you wouldn't see any relationship. So I think... Uh, um, uh, we can't just take the Phillips curve as an iron law that, you know, when unemployment goes down, inflation goes up. You can't treat it that way. It's, it's more subtle than that. Is it subtle enough to say that the, the relationship is dead, that the Phillips curve is dead here? It's not just about not really feeling the heartbeat here, that th the patients died. I think the way to think about it is that the Phillips curve interacts with the policymaker, and if the policymaker offsets the effects coming from the Phillips curve, then you're not going to see any relationship. <laughs> it doesn't mean that it's not there. It doesn't mean the patient's dead. That's right. Sorry. So, um, so so uh, I, this is a deep issue, and it's been discussed in macroeconomics for decades. So. Yeah, and we'll continue to discuss it. Yeah. We're not writing it off at this stage. Yeah. What do you say to savers at this moment who are relying to savers? Oh, savers. So to US savers. I'm not sure we're asked this enough as we talk about bringing rates down and those that rely on that income from, from their deposits. Yeah, I would say people now coming into retirement are probably projecting lower returns uh, than they would have, uh, let's say, in the 90s or something like that. So I, there has been some adjustment. This low rate environment has been going on now for a decade in the U.S. and longer than that in, uh, in Japan. So uh, it's definitely a new era, and I think anybody that's saving for retirement should take everything into account as far as the global rate structure. One of the interesting things, and you mentioned uh, Japan there, and you've long been talking about the risks of the uh, Japanification yeah. of the United States, is, is whether you do similar policy to Japan and target a specific yield level to try and anchor the yield curve to save you perhaps having to cut rates or, or move around to such a degree. Are you having that conversation? Well, we are having a framework review and that would definitely be one of the policies that could be considered in this framework uh, review. We had a conference in Chicago. Uh, there's another earlier conference at Stanford on this. There are other conferences around the country and there are more to come. So it's one of the things uh, that could be looked at. Uh, the U.S. did target longer-term yields uh, uh, in the 40s uh, during World War II. Um, you could argue about that, but it actually ended up badly uh, with a lot of inflation. But you could argue about whether that's really relevant, the relevant example. Times are very different now. Yeah. Let's talk about trade. You mentioned the trade war and, and the risk that this presents. We, we have the two things. We have a decision by the United States government to sign or not sign a trade deal with China. We also have a president that's very eager to see rates lower. And there are those that look at the situation and say, there's a moral hazard problem. The president could hold off signing a trade deal, allow the Federal Reserve to cut rates two or three times, and then sign a trade deal. And that big risk then goes away. That's the problem. Uh, my assessment is that uh, trade uncertainty used to be relatively low. This used to be an issue that was, relatively speaking, on the back burner. 
Uh, the president has moved it to the front burner. Now I think trade uncertainty is high, and I don't see that uncertainty declining anytime soon. Uh, and I think other countries are getting into the game. They're wondering about their own trade uh, relationships. Uh, they're wondering if they could get better deals or renegotiate. So I think we're in for a long period of higher trade uncertainty than what we're used to. Uh, and it's not just the U.S., but obviously something like Brexit or uh, other things around the world. I think the Chinese are rethinking their tr trade policy. So I think we're just going to have to cope with the idea that this is going to be a volatile area of policy, at least over the forecast horizon, and maybe even much longer than that. Whereas previously, we kind of thought of this as, okay, that was something that was decided via the post-war uh, trade liberalization program. Just to be clear, you're not anticipating a, a trade deal between the United States and China anytime this year? Well, uh, I think they could come to a, a nominal deal, but uh, things could come up later that then, uh, you know, provoke more uncertainty around that. So I, I just think that countries are re- considering what their trade relationships are and I think that for for investors that just means well you gotta you gotta be ready that the trade relationships might change uh, on a dime I think investors are more optimistic than you right now I think the story that uh, you're gonna all of a sudden reach a deal with China and then we're not gonna hear anything more about trade over the next five years I think that's a that's a fantasy these these articles have these ideas have been brought out of the box and now we're gonna have to wrestle with them and they're difficult to solve let's talk about new Fed members potential Fed members joining there's a concern out there that the nominations are people that are aligned with this White House, with the president on cutting rates, but other things. If he changes his mind, so will they. Are you worried about the dilution of the independence of the Fed? Uh, well, uh, one of the potential nominees is my research director, yes. Chris Waller. Uh, he was a chaired professor at Notre Dame. Then he came to work at the Fed. He uh, has long experience on the FOMC, long research record. A lot of his research is all about Fed independence. About half his papers are about Fed independence. So he's actually a world expert on that. And uh, I think he'd be a very good uh, person to, uh, to put very much in the tradition of the technocratic uh, appointments that we put at the Fed historically. Let's talk about Judy Shelton then. Is she a good choice? I don't know Judy Shelton as well. I have met her. Uh, I met her at a conference in Paris last year. I thought she was quite articulate, uh, but she'll have to uh, defend her own views. I mean, her views. She's very capable of doing that. She, I would agree with <laughs> yeah. you. She did, though, say in the last year that she favors repegging the US dollar to the gold standard. Um, is that a good idea? The gold standard, uh, you know, the U.S. did have a gold standard uh, at one time, and, and then uh, we really didn't fully get off gold until Nixon uh, in the early 1970s. So uh, there is a literature that talks about gold and the pluses and minuses. I've said publicly before that I felt inflation targeting was the modern incarnation of the gold standard. Uh, because what you're doing is putting some discipline around the future 
uh, issuance of the, of the currency, and this is stabilizing the inflation outcomes uh, compared to what you would otherwise get, which is exactly what you'd be trying to do under the gold standard. But with gold, you've got mining and, you know, how much gold are you going to find and, and these kinds of issues. And, it, and in some cases, it didn't work out well internationally. Would you agree that it's inconsistent of someone to want to peg the U.S. dollar to gold, but also be wanting to cut rates? You're trying to enforce a level of discipline on the one hand and then trying to push for lower rates on the other. I mean, I don't know. We don't have much inflation today. So, um, you know, my idea is set the inflation target, manage to it, and hit it. That's It's the credibility of the central bank that uh, is really the critical uh, variable here. Sounds like you two could have some lively discussions going <laughs> forward. All right, let's talk about the U.S. dollar, because this I is mean, something I, else. I would say this that about, about this whole issue. A lot of this was discussed in the 1970s when inflation was high and variable. That would be the natural time to talk about commodity standards, and people did talk about yes. commodity standards. And uh, the the outcome of that debate was to uh, not go to a commodity standard, but try to get the central bank to do what they're supposed to do. That was the Volcker disinflation, and right. then since then, certainly since 1995 or so, uh, inflation really has been pretty close to 2% the whole time. Yeah, I'll, I'll call it inconsistent. Um, <laughs> All right, let's talk about the U.S. dollar, because this is something else where the president has said he'd like a, a weaker U.S. dollar. And we've also seen currency intervention from the Treasury in the past, too. The Fed may not have liked it, but they went hand in hand with it. What's the likelihood that we see a call from this White House for direct intervention to weaken the dollar? And would the Fed stand by and, yeah, and the, go with the it? The academic literature on this says it's very hard to intervene and have much impact on the dollar, uh, especially for very thickly traded markets like dollar yen or dollar uh, euro. But if the White House said, look, we're abandoning our strong dollar policy outright, that would have an impact. Uh, I, it's very hard to have an impact. And the other thing about exchange rates is it depends what the other guy's doing. So it's a relative game uh, where the other country uh, might be uh, trying to do the same thing and then nothing happens to the exchange rate. So I think... Uh, you know, this idea of competitive devaluation, which is something that happened in the 30s, is probably not something we want to get into. We want to run a great policy for the U.S., uh, get great innovation, use the great technology we have, use the workforce that we have. That's how you have a great economy. I don't think you can depreciate your way to success. Very quickly, because we've got one minute left, your views on Facebook Libra the cryptocurrency alternative, future alternative to the dollar, uh, a big threat? I'm actually going to talk this uh, in a day or two at a conference on uh, uh, cryptocurrency. My session is on cryptocurrency, uh -oh. so uh, I'll have some some good comments about that uh, there, I hope. <laughs> Can you yeah. give us a teaser? <laughs> well, this is, uh, uh, what I've said about this in the past is that there are ideas for monetary theory, and then there are ideas that the computer science guys have. They don't always match very well. So. So that's, that's mostly what my talk so is about. So you're, you're not a fan at this stage? Uh, I don't think that cryptocurrency really solves any fundamental problems about that, that are uh, natural to any currency. And uh, some of the other points are there's a lot of currency competition already, so you bring another currency in, it doesn't really make any difference. There's always an equilibrium where no one wants to hold the currency. Most of the cryptocurrencies are in that equilibrium. Uh, today, there were zero. So... Um, these are some of the things I, I like to bring up. Are you on Facebook? 
I'm not a, on Facebook. We're corporately, we're on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> we'll go there. Jim, fantastic to have you. All with right, us. great to have you. Jim great to be here. Yeah. President of the St. Louis Fed. The market open is next. shouting this morning is pretty loud. Stocks right now are opening a little bit lower. I think investors reacting to a latest run of earnings, weaker from the likes of SAP, as we've mentioned, Netflix, of course, too, and a bit of softness as a result of Morgan Stanley's numbers as well. The line there again, equity trading, the trading divisions of all these banks this week been weaker. We've also just brought to you our exclusive interview with Jim Bullard, of course, the president of the St. Louis Federal Reserve, confirming he's still, of course, pushing for a rate cut in July. Doesn't think that doing half a percent cuts at this stage in that July meeting is right, but he did say, of course, that he thinks two this year will be enough. I tried to push him on current market pricing three. He wouldn't be pushed, but interesting for me, I think on trade, where he said, look, as far as the Fed is concerned, trade risks, trade uncertainty is not going away. Even if there's some kind of nominal deal between China and the United States, the risks around trade, even with other countries, remains, and there's still going to be tensions between these two countries. Interesting. Let's bring in Greg Valier now. He's chief U.S. policy strategist at AGF Investments. Greg, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Interesting to hear what Jim Bullard said there in light of Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary's comments today, saying that talks are going to happen between the U.S. and China, but the rumor is they're really struggling here. Yeah, Julia, I, I think there are a lot of unresolved issues, but one of the takeaways from your interview with Bullard is that the Fed, I think, recognizes this. And it's not just China. We haven't ratified the, the replacement for NAFTA, uh, and there's still a threat of a trade war with Western Europe that would involve hundreds and maybe even thousands of products from the two countries. So there's definitely still a trade risk that the Fed has to worry about prospects of some kind of agreement over the spending bill, the debt ceiling raise as well, because he hinted that at least at the top line they've reached some kind of agreement here. What are you thinking on that? Yeah, I, I do think that Pelosi and Mnuchin have made progress. There could be an announcement in the next 24 hours. The markets will be watching this carefully. But this could slip. So much stuff in Washington slips until you absolutely have to do something. And they probably don't absolutely have to do something until early September. So I, I'm not 100% convinced we'll get a deal. And moreover, I'm not convinced that Trump is on board with any deal that has Nancy Pelosi's fingerprints all over it. What's in the president's best interest here on both of these things? As you said, if it looks like Nancy Pelosi manages to get all sorts of spending measures passed here. Yeah. He looks like he's given excessive ground. Even on the trade front here, this is somewhere where both the Democrats and the Republicans are united in, in pushing back on China here. What works best for the president here in campaign mode for 2020? Let me offer a theory. I think in the last few days he's been so aggressive playing the race card. You saw the rally last night in North Carolina. His base loves it. So he's now solidified his base. There's nothing he could do to drive them away. Now that gives him a little wiggle room to maybe cut a deal with China, to maybe cut a deal that increases spending. The base won't like it, but I think he's got the base firmly in his pocket now. 
interesting. A lot of people looked at those tweets over the weekend and we've seen back and forth. I'm talking about the perceived racist tweets towards the four non-white congresswomen, of course, and people were like, wow, this is this is going to be incredibly toxic. And then you see, as you've mentioned, the crowds last night saying, send her home. In the end, yeah. he turned what was a battle between the Democrats and Nancy Pelosi and the squad into something positive for him. Well, he's unified the Democrats, but he's also labeled the Democrats as the party of those four women. And I think that that's his goal. He wants to make it sound as if all the Democrats are like that. I've talked to a lot of moderate Democrats this week in Washington who aren't happy with the four women because they now are so inextricably linked to them. That's Trump's goal all along. So basically, we found Nancy Pelosi for individuals that previously she was sort of saying, guys, look, get back in your box. And actually, at certain points, your views are extreme and they don't represent the whole. And now she's finding herself aligned with them. In fact, the whole party is. That's part of it. But I tell you, Julia, Trump is going to need Pelosi in the next couple of months on the debt ceiling, on getting a new budget, on lifting spending caps. There are a lot of crucial issues where conservative House Republicans may not go along. And he's going to need votes from her troops. That's going to be fun to watch. You know, it's interesting. You sent out a note this week listing all the things that this government has not managed to achieve. Uh, no infrastructure bill, no trade deal, no health care yep. bill, no labor reforms. I mean, there was a whole list. And I have to say, at the end of that, I did think, well, what have we achieved? And also, where is this Congress aligned? And one of them in particular was on Jay Powell. Everybody thinks that, that Jay Powell is a good guy and the right person for the job here. Ultimately, what matters for investors here? And can the Federal Reserve remain independent, follow through on policy? And can that also play to Trump's policies and his campaign in 2022? It's, it's a huge wild card. Uh, obviously, Jim Bullard was not going to talk explicitly about fears at the Fed uh, concerning Powell and Trump. But I have talked to people at the Fed who worry that Trump may try to not fire Powell, but demote him from chairman to a mere governor. Uh, Trump apparently thinks he has the legal authority to do that. And I tell you, Julia, if uh, the Fed cuts rates twice in the second half or even three times in the second half, it won't be enough for Trump. And at some point next year, maybe at the end of the winter, I think the option of demoting Powell is still going to be very much on the plate. Greg, you said it. No doubt we'll talk about this more. Greg Bellier, always a pleasure to have you on First Moves. Thank you. All right, let's move on. Morgan Stanley, as I've mentioned, earnings beating expectations in the second quarter. Thank you to the strength in the wealth management business. We're also keeping an eye on BB&T, of course, reporting record earnings in the second quarter, but a mixed earnings picture for their merger partner, SunTrust. Matt Egan joins us now with all the details. Matt, let's talk about Morgan Stanley first. Your observations here. So, Julia, what I think is really interesting is that Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley are really moving in opposite direction when it comes to trading, at least in the second quarter. You know, Goldman had reported earlier this week an increase in equity trading revenue, which really bucked the broader trend that we've seen. And my eyebrows were raised when Goldman said that it may have picked up some market share. And now it looks like perhaps Morgan Stanley lost some ground to its arch rival because Morgan reported a 14 percent decline in equity trading 
recent revenue. Um, that is among the worst that we've seen from any of the big banks, surpassing even what we saw from Bank of America yesterday. And, um, you know, the, the company blamed lower uh, balances from clients. Now, fixed income trading revenue was down even more. It was off by uh, 18%. They blamed shrinking rates, lower volatility, lower uh, structured financial products. And, you know, during the conference call, CEO James Gorman, he talked about how, you know, the second quarter was met with a mixed market backdrop. He said the quarter began on a strong footing, but macro, economic and political uncertainties affected sentiment. Now, clearly, you know, trading business is under pressure. We're talking about low volatility, the rise of active trading. Uh, the bright spot for Morgan Stanley, as you mentioned, though, was wealth management. It unexpectedly grew revenue during the quarter. Um, it posted record pre-tax income. And a lot of that obviously has to do with the stock market boom. Um, so clearly Morgan Stanley is not firing on all cylinders right now, Julia. Yeah, it's such a great, interesting point about the uh, the divergence in approach and performance here, for, for particularly for Goldman Sachs and, and Morgan Stanley here. I tell you what, my takeaway, and we've talked about this, is the strength in the U.S. consumer. You want to be facing the U.S. consumer as a bank in the United States at this moment. And it seems like it's the same story for BB&T because, again, loan growth here was a real strong point. Absolutely. So BBNT and SunTrust um, both reported some solid numbers. Now, these are, of course, the regional banks. They're joining forces in a, a new mega regional bank that will be called uh, Truist. Um, I like to joke that that is the banking industry's uh, answer to trunk as far as naming goes. But um, what another interesting point to Despite, like, this, this, on top of the fact that you know these regional banks are enjoying um, strong loan growth and deposit growth, they are under pressure from the Federal Reserve and interest rates, though, because both of these regional banks this morning reported declines in net interest margins, both from the first quarter and also year over year. And, you know, as your interview earlier this morning suggested that this is going to continue to be a problem for banks as the Federal Reserve appears to be moving close to lowering interest rates. Julia. Absolutely. Matt Egan, thank you so much for that update there. All right. So we're going to take a quick move, quick break here on First Move. Get my words out. But coming up, plenty of stranger things here. In fact, Netflix earnings were a bit of a horror show, I think, for investors. All the details and some analysis next. Welcome back to First Move with a quick look at our global movers today. As you can see, eBay trading higher by some 7.2%, second quarter profit and revenues beating estimates. The company attracted more customers by making its platform easier to use. We saw net income falling to $400 million down, though, from $600 million last year. IBM higher by some 2.3% income, beating estimates, and the company maintaining its full-year outlook. IBM's cloud division also jumped 5% on more than $5 billion worth of revenues. However, the overall revenue fell for the fourth quarter in a row. What about Netflix, though? Down 10% right now. The online streaming giant posting a rare miss in subscriber growth. It added just 2.7 million new subscribers in the second quarter, about half of the 5 million analysts expected. Netflix also lost some 120,000 U.S. subscribers. It expected to gain 350,000. The company says it's expecting to have a strong third quarter. Daniel Ives is managing director at investment firm Wedbush Securities. Always a pleasure, Dan. Great to be here. What about 
about Netflix, I said earlier on the show, sack the forecasting department. I mean, that was a, a huge miss. Yeah, this was a gut punch for the Bulls. I mean, if you look at it, that subscriber miss, that's one of the worst you've seen in a few years. And it's also as you feel like the walls are caving in a bit with Disney and Iger, as well as Apple and Cook, starting to focus on streaming. So I think right now it becomes a prove me story going the second half. And this is a silver bullet, at least for, for the against the Bulls. I mean, to your point, and actually Netflix said this, they said, look, this was not about competition. This was just about not having the right content mix in the quarter. But we know they've also been increasing prices. And in a zero, near zero inflation world, a 20% price rise feels like a lot at this moment. And perhaps, you know, subscribers are telling you that. Yeah, and I think that's really been the balancing act. And they might have sort of right now, it's a bit of a risk in terms of where they price this. And I think you're seeing consumers, especially in the U.S., you know, a bit of a backlash there, especially when Disney and others are going to undercut them, including Apple from a pricing perspective. For the first time in many, many years, they have a target on their back and it seems like it's working. I mean, Disney's going to come in November and is at half the price that they're charging right now. But my question here is, is this a warning shot for all of these guys? Are we at a point where we're starting to see some degree of saturation for streaming? I mean, how many of these different subscriptions ultimately are you going to take on here? Yeah, there's a lot of kids in the sandbox right now in terms of overall streaming. And I think you're starting to see a lot of consumers, remember, on average paying for two, potentially three. And I think now you're seeing a tipping point. And I think going into next year, you'll see some of the weaker hands sort of, you know, play out. You could see consolidation, but it comes down to for the first time net Netflix really has some competition and is facing some headwinds. Now, I can't get you on without talking big tech in general and what we saw in front of Congress this week, whether it was tackling Amazon on its sort of dual role of host to, to um, sellers, but also a seller itself, but also Facebook, of course. So um, where do you want to go first? Look, I think there was a lot of grandstanding, which we expected. Of Facebook, you, know, you don't expect too many candlelight dinners between Zuckerberg and some <laughs> Congress. Uh, men, women, and I think that's the issue right now. You know, that's a glass half empty view of Facebook for good reason. And you look at Libra, you know, they are on the offensive instead of the defensive. You expected that. Now the question is, what are the hurdles to ultimately get Libra to a green light situation? Amazon, in our opinion, this is the first step to a broader antitrust view of them. We continue to think Bark's worse than a bite, but right now the street's taking more of a focus of this issue, especially going to 2020 elections. Let's talk about Facebook again, though, because you mentioned Libra, and that's the cryptocurrency, and we've focused entirely on that this week. What about Calibra? which is the payment system that they're talking about developing attached to Facebook. For me, that could be incredibly powerful. And actually, the crypto part of it is a bit of a distraction. Well, you're right. I think crypto is getting a lot of the focus. But when you go Calibra from a monetization engine, that really could be right. a successful initiative with not as much regulatory issues. It's about how do you monetize those few billion users. They might have figured out the formula. Yeah, advertisers, you can click through potentially as you're on Facebook and buy something from there. That's got huge money potential. <gasps> Very quickly, Microsoft after the bell today. What are we thinking on this I one? mean, look, Nadella continues as the golden touch in cloud. It's a two-horse race, them and Amazon. We think Microsoft is gaining net share in cloud. Expect another strong quarter, and that's why you're seeing more and more of a re-rating in the stock, you know, especially as more investors are trying to play the cloud theme. Got to ask 
you about Tesla because that's coming up next week while I have you. We were talking earlier this week about the shifts in pricing, the juggling of pricing, and it happens so often. What are your thoughts on this one? They're trying everything. They're trying everything to stimulate demand. 2Q obviously a step in the right direction. The issue continues to be second half numbers. We think they're going to have to rip the Band-Aid off and lower their guidance for Again. the year. Again, and then it comes down to how can they do this profitably? That's going to be the focus of the street in terms of profitability in 3Q and 4Q. That's where right now Musk and Tesla need to prove to investors. Yeah, watch this space, Dan. We'll get you back next week to talk Thank about you. it. Dan Ives of Wedbush Securities. Thank you. Thank you. Always great to get you on. All right. Coming up on the show, fun app or Russian hack? We'll discuss the face filter app millions of people have been using this week that's now sparking major privacy concerns. That's next. first move with a look at today's boardroom brief. Shares of U.S. chipmaker Qualcomm are under pressure. The EU fined it more than $270 million for, quote, predatory pricing. The competition commissioner says the company sold below cost to force its competitor Isera out of the market. The British fashion retailer ASOS issued a profit warning on Thursday. Shares are down, as you can see, some 16.5% late London trading. The company says they are working on fixing operational issues in warehouses, which increased costs and hit sales. This is ASOS's third profit warning in eight months. Cybersecurity experts are raising the red flag on the smartphone app that went viral this week called FaceApp. Users are having fun aging their selfies by decades, but they're also granting the Russian company that made FaceApp full access to their personal photos and their data. U.S. Senator Chuck Schumer is now calling for an FBI investigation into the app, citing national security concerns. Haddis Gold joins us now on this story. Uh, Haddis, I shouldn't laugh, but I am. The number of texts I got from people this week saying, you have to try this, it's brilliant, and then got sheepish follow-up texts going, actually, don't bother, look at the details of this. Just explain what happened. Right, Julia, it's very enticing, you know, using one of these fun apps to make to see what you might look like 20, 30, 40 years from now. And as you showed on screen, there's a lot of celebrities and a lot of our friends and families are likely having some fun with this. But then people started digging into what this company is. Now, the company behind the FaceApp group is actually based in Russia. So that already set up some red flags for people. But I do have to say, more so than where they're based or, or who they might share that information with. I think what's more important is if people look into the licensing and what you're allowing this app to do with the photos that you upload. And what they say is that they allow that they can do whatever they want with the photo that you upload, irrevocable, not exclusive, royalty-free, worldwide, transferable, sub-licensable license. Pretty much that means they own the photo. If they want to do whatever they want to do with it, they can do it for commercial purposes and you won't get any money out of it. So that's why I'm sort of surprised to see a lot of celebrities whose whole business is often their image getting so involved with this app. Now, the app has come out against some of these concerns, especially around the concerns about that they're in Russia saying that, listen, our data is not being shared with any sort of Russian authorities. But obviously, in today's day and age, people are very concerned about their data going into some company that's based out of Russia. 
and they're also, the company is trying to push back on this idea that they have access to your entire photo roll. They say that is not the case. But I should also, again, emphasize to note that the biggest thing people actually should be thinking about is the licensing and what they're allowing this app to do with the photo that they are uploading. But obviously this is getting a lot of attention also from politicians. You noted Senator Chuck Schumer and also the Democratic National Committee has warned its employees and its members not to upload the app. Julia? Yeah, I looked at it. I mean, it's not just about the photos either. It gives you access to Siri, to search. It's, it gives you access to refreshing in the background. So even if you're not using it effectively, it, it's using you. I mean, how does, it's a big picture here. It proves actually we've learned nothing since Cambridge Analytica. <laughs> We're still taking risks, huge risks, in fact, Listen, with our privacy and with our data. Because people people want to use these apps. You ask people, do you trust Facebook with your data? And people will say, maybe no. But are you still going to stop using Facebook? No, because people want to use these. These are fun. They're, they're, obviously, we're seeing how much attention this app is getting. But there's a lot of privacy and legal issues behind the scenes that people just aren't very educated about, that they need to understand what's happening. And actually, some of the conversation is now turning to the app stores, to the Apple App Store, to the Google Play Store, and asking, are you vetting these apps in a, in a well enough category to allow them onto your platform and to even, in some cases, promote them at an, as an editor's pick? Yeah. I have to say my favorite was a picture of Boris Johnson one week after he enters number 10 Downing Street and faces the Brexit conundrum. That did make me laugh. Naughty. Hannah's yeah, gone. you can't deny Thank it's you. fun. That's <laughs> cold. Thank you so much for that. All right, let's take a look at what we're seeing for the markets this morning here in the United States. We are a little bit softer here. Interesting show, though. Lots of news. Obviously, Jim Bullard as well saying to us, still pushing for that rate cut in July, not pushing for more than two rate cuts at this stage in 2019. So a little bit of an anomaly there with the markets. Lots to discuss. But for now, that was it for First Move. Time to go make yours. I'll see you tomorrow. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.